Welcome to Dog Talk and Kitties 2. This episode is one part of my hour-long NPR show heard every Sunday on WLIW-FM 88.3, the only NPR station on Long Island, where it has broadcast continuously for 14 years. I'm Tracy Hotchner. I wrote the Dog Bible, everything your dog wants you to know, as well as the Cat Bible, everything your cat expects you to know, because I care about people who care about cats, dogs, and other creatures who share our planet. I'm also the founder and director of the New York Dog Film Festival and the New York Cat Film Festival, which travel America and Canada supporting local animal welfare groups. I could not bring you this show without the support of Dr. Elsie's, the privately owned litter and cat food company founded by Dr. Elsie, a feline-only veterinarian who's created a variety of litters to please any cat, as well as inventing clean protein cat foods based on the protein found in cats' natural prey. This show is also made possible with the generous sponsorship of Waruva, the Foreman family-owned pet food company named after their rescued kitties, Webster, Rudy, and Vanessa, where all their recipes in cans and pouches are human edible because they're made in a human food facility. I am back with Ryan Yamka, who, as I said, is a, a nutritional consultant, veterinary consultant, and he's worked for Hills Pet Nutrition, the Hearts Mountain Company, Blue Buffalo. He's done a lot of consulting with pet food companies. And he also co-authored the macronutrient section in the book they use in vet school to study nutrition. So that's pretty cool. Ryan, welcome to the show. And I'm so glad you got in touch after I recently wrote a, a blog about crude protein that seems to just fascinate people. The words crude protein. No one seems to quite know what they are. So I, I really appreciate what you do. So your work is is as a researcher, or do you look at all the research that's been done and then pull together that information, either as a consultant or as an author? Um, so when that book chapter was written, I was actually employed at Hills Pet Nutrition. Okay. And it was compiled from uh, a lot of research that was out there that uh, was conducted by myself when I was at University of Kentucky, uh, as well as research by George Fahey and his group at a university, Illinois, uh, as well as other universities that would have been publishing things. So that whole chapter really at that point in time was a summary of all of the peer-reviewed data that would have been, um, you know, as part of that topic. And 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 those sort that sort of research and then the compiling of it is how pet food companies and the AAFCO I'm thinking come up with the proportions and the amounts of various nutrients that go into pet food so that it is well balanced and covers all the bases of what a dog or a cat needs and I'm sure other animals as well but in our case we're talking about dogs and cats needs to stay healthy. Is that right? It's, it's, it's studying the, the minimums and maximums? Well, I, I would consider it more of um, that they have developed the guidelines, um, their recommended guidelines for, to get an animal to thrive. Uh, if you actually went to the nutrient requirement uh, book for dogs and cats, you'll see that a lot of those numbers are either lower or higher. 
so when AFCO puts those things together, they want to make sure that you're well above the threshold for minimum requirements and you're well below the threshold for what would be a uh, toxic situation. So they're not going to put, a, for example, they're not going to put a maximum that is at a toxic level because, you know, variation in ingredients and things of that nature, you don't want to be running that red line, so to speak, like you would on a car. Uh, so what they do is they put out guidelines to make sure that you're not going to have any issues with that food to ensure the animal is going to thrive and have a healthy life. And thrive is a, a, a very important word because survive is actually part of what I thought were in the minimums, that that it was what it would take to maintain life over a six-month period, not what would have an animal really thrive. But I, I guess that pet nutrition, commercial pet nutrition, has evolved to some extent beyond survival or maintenance of life to actually thriving and having, you know, healthy skin and fur and eyes and heart. Is that right? Has it evolved or did I just misunderstand the survive versus thrive kind of mantra? No, it, it's, um, it, it's, in some aspects, it, it has evolved, and in other aspects, it, it may not have. And so, um, in some, in, in, for example, um, now you're going to see requirements for things like DHA and stuff like that to ensure uh, proper puppy development and things of that nature. And when you look at the guidelines, depending on if you're in the U.S. or the EU or whatever, uh, they may have different reasons for doing it. So when AFCO puts together their information, they're trying to take into account everyday ingredients that they're utilizing, as well as digestibility of the total foods. Uh, so that's why you won't see them uh, recommend, hey, you know, the, the minimum requirement for dogs is, let's say for argument's sake, 10% protein. They'll come in and say it's 18. So you're ensuring that that animal is is uh, going to be in good shape. Um, if you were to go to Europe, uh, their numbers, some of their numbers, especially for mineral, actually has nothing to do with the health of the animal, has more of an issue of environmental impact. And, really? Uh, yeah, and so for example, zinc for, uh, is a great example. They have a very low number uh, for dogs and cats there, and it's, it's tied to the environment, um, which was you know, if the animal defecates zinc, you have runoff into watersheds and things of that nature. And so when you get into different countries, they may have upper limits for different reasons. It's not always for the animal's health, not to say that in that case, that animal's unhealthy, but for it's for environment reasons. How interesting. And I've lived in Italy for a long time and, and bought commercial dog food there for my dogs and kitties, as well as giving them human food. And I thought, oh, it looks so great. And the Italians are so very, very fiercely against using any fake colors or artificial uh, chemicals in any of their food, human or animal. And, and, and along with the kibble shapes, there, were, there was cracked corn that had been smashed. I don't know what the process is, but they looked like corn flakes. They were flakes of real corn, like you'd give cracked corn to a chicken or to a, a horse or a cow. But it was smashed for the dog, and I thought, well, this is really great, and then met a man whose family was wildly wealthy because they had the biggest animal feed company in Italy for for 
you know, pigs and sheep and those kind of animals. And I said something about, oh, the food is so much better here for dogs and cats and so much cleaner and healthier. And and who was and how do they you know, who determines all of these important regulations? He said, nobody. There's no regulation at all. Now, I don't know if that's changed. This was about 12 years ago. But unlike the whole idea of AFCO and now the FDA being involved in pet food, there were no minimums or maximums for the health of animals. You could put pretty much anything into dog and cat food in Italy, which surprised me because it looked and smelled really good. So isn't that a bit odd? Or um, you- yeah, I'm surprised he would have said that because they would have to um, uh, follow the FEDIAF guidelines. F-E-D-I-A-F is the acronym. I, I see. What it stands for, but... Um, they, they just might have, uh, not been aware of it, um, to say that they don't have to follow anything, uh, I, I would say is, is, is not accurate. I, I, you know what, being a company that big, he had to be aware of it. I guess he was just being that sort of Italian anarchistic attitude, which is no one's going to tell me <laughs> what to do. Cause that's so Italian. I mean, each of them is a, a personal anarchist. Well, this is interesting about the protein issue, crude protein being one of those kind of head scratchers for consumers, at least it was for me when I was researching way back when and and even continuing to pay attention to it because people for their own diets and for their pets' diets know that protein is the most expensive part of our diets and one in which high protein is what wealthier people and luckier animals can have, right? That it's better to have more protein. But crude protein doesn't really mean protein. It doesn't mean 18% actual chicken, right? Can you talk about crude protein and what that number, what it really means, what that value really means? Sure. So um, for, to, to begin with, uh, human industry and pet industry use the same measurement. Um, and so they're both using uh, either a Keldall method, which is a long drawn out um, process of measuring nitrogen content in the food or the Dumas uh, method, which is a combustion method, and it's a lot faster. Um, both methods, what they do is they measure the nitrogen content of the food, uh, and then they use a factor of 6.25 to estimate protein, um, and being that it is a crude method, hence the name crude protein. I see. For, you, for a human um, nutrition, for whatever reason, they never added crude to it, uh, <laughs> at, at, for pet food, they did because, you know, back in the day you had scientists doing it and they were analyzing it and that's what they're doing. And, and they're actually in the process now, um, AFCO and the FDA, of discussing should they drop the terms crude from protein, fat, and fiber because they're using similar methods and they want to make uh, – something similar to a nutrition facts box. It won't be called that, but it'll be something that's similar in lines to what humans see so they can understand that better. Um, and, and and it looks and, better. The word crude protein, something about it. I used to think it was like, oh, men in the forest eating crude protein, like the, the raw protein, but it didn't mean that at all. It meant a measurement, a measurement of, of the nitrogen. Is it that the protein breaks down as or gives off as a I mean, what does that mean? The nitrogen is how you judge the protein. Right. So what it's doing is uh, protein is uh, is made of amino acids, um, and amino acids all have uh, nitrogen in them. They're nitrogen-containing compounds. There's other compounds that contain nitrogen as well, and that's why, you know, that method's called crude protein. Okay. But in, in that case, what they're trying to do is give you a best estimate of 
uh, how much protein and how much amino acids are in that food uh, for that animal. And more importantly, they also utilize that number along with uh, crude fat and carbohydrate to determine the energy content of the food using at water. Um, the problem with just looking with crude protein as a number on, on the paper or on the bag or right. wherever you're looking it up and comparing it is you could be looking at five different foods that all say 30% crude protein and their marketing people can be saying all these great things. Right. But if they don't have numbers uh, for, let's say, amino acid content of the food or actual digestibility or absorption numbers, yes. those numbers of 30% crude protein really doesn't tell you anything because it doesn't tell you about the quality of, and availability of that uh, protein source. Exactly. Um, and and things that people tend to forget about is, and, and this is why um, pet food companies, they will over formulate foods um, because some of those proteins get uh, either degraded or uh, damaged through uh, cooking processes, whether right. it's canned food or right. dry food. Yep. And it's no different um, than what you see, and the, the best way to describe it, uh, the Maillard reaction is those that you know watch a sugar cookie kind of browns, and it gets that browning effect. Yes. Well, sometimes individual amino acids like lysine, for example, can bind to a sugar, making that uh, nutrient not available. Now, I would still go and analyze that food, and I would still pick up that crude protein because that nitrogen is still in that food, but that lysine that might have undergone, undergone that reaction in that pet food would not be digested or absorbed right. by the animal. And so you don't know those numbers. For you to have a better feeling of it, um, the supplier or whoever manufactures the food, they should supply digestibility numbers to go with it. Um, most companies that are science-based and they have nutritionists on staff um, will have that, that number or that knowledge. Uh, and most of the time, they're more than happy to share it with you. Some will even put it on their websites or in their product guides. And, and, and veterinarians usually have access to that information. If, if they don't know how to get it, they can usually track it down. That, um, that's really interesting. I mean, it really makes the, the, the attempt to get a high protein in a, in, a, in a pet food and paying super premium for it, it changes the picture when you know that it's the digestibility of it. How much of that protein is available to the dog or cat's body to actually absorb and digest as protein? And, and just asking for the digestibility number sounds like a really an, a good solution, especially you're paying money every, every week or every month. And you want to make sure you're spending it well for ultimate health, right? Absolutely. And so, you know, the, to put it in, in context, and, you know, it's crude numbers, but if I was looking at um, two different foods and they're both 30% crude protein and one of them was 100% digestible, um, doesn't mean it's all uh, absorbable, but let's just assume it is, and the other one is 50%, well, that one that's 50% would be no different than feeding something that was 15%. Exactly. That was 100% uh, digestible and absorbed. Exactly. So, and, so why have, and so having those numbers become very important and, and relevant uh, to the consumer because, you know, not all proteins are created equal.
exactly what I've thought for years. I really appreciate you explaining it, Ryan. We're, we're out of time, but it's great to have such a pro explain these things so well and so clearly. Going to have to come have you come back. There's so many other ingredients that I would love to discuss. Thanks for listening. There are a few more very special companies that make this show possible, and I hope you will support their support of my mission to entertain and educate. Merrick Pet Care, which began as a family-run company in Texas 30 years ago, is still making natural pet food I feed my own dogs. They also provide nutrition to pet shelters in Chicago and Texas and free food for the service dogs for veterans from Canines for Warriors. Cradle, which makes CBD calming products to reduce stress for dogs using broad-spectrum CBD from U.S.-grown hemp, formulated with a proprietary blend of nutraceutical ingredients. My Wanda Weimaraner couldn't get through thunderstorms without their cradle melts. Earth Animal, which is privately owned by Dr. Bob and Susan Goldstein, creates holistic pet wellness products with an emphasis on their stewardship of the Pet Sustainability Coalition and makes innovative foods like the hybrid dog food Wisdom, which sometimes is all that Maisie Hotchner will eat. Evermore Pet Food, which is privately owned by two extraordinary women who cook dog food from the most pristine human edible ingredients and ship it to your door in frozen pouches. It's higher quality and more ethically sourced than my own food. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this shorter version of Dog Talk and Kitties 2, and we'll listen to other episodes sometime soon.